Hi there, I'm Mark Icero, and this is the Highlighter Podcast. Hello and welcome to the 28th episode of the Highlighter Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. This podcast is an opportunity for us to talk about the best articles and podcast episodes on race, education, and culture. And I'm really excited about this week's guest. But before I introduce her, I would like to make sure that you are all invited to Highlighter Happy Hour number four, HHH number four, which is going to be this Thursday at 530 over at room 389 in Oakland. If you have not gotten your free ticket, you can go now to highlighter.cc slash events. What's great about it is if you bring your ticket, then you get a prize. So definitely do that. Um, it's going to be a lot of fun, and I think that there's going to be a lot of people there. So please come on over and chat about the articles. And now it's time to introduce today's guest. I'm really happy to have Christine Ree on the show. Christine is a very loyal subscriber to the Digest and listener to the podcast. But even more important, she's an attorney in San Diego, and she's going to be talking about an article that appeared in number 127 on predictive policing. I'm very happy to have you listen to Christine. She's wonderful. And one of the reasons is that she likes the Giants, the San Francisco Giants, which we'll talk about in just a second. Let's get right to the interview. Hi, Christine. How are you? Good. How are you, Mark? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for being on the show. Could you introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Christine Ree. Um, I'm an attorney in Southern California. I live in San Diego, and I'm a loyal listener to your podcast. I am so happy that you are a loyal listener. I'm very excited about that. Thank you. Um, before we get into a little bit more about you, I want to know more about your passion for baseball, because that's actually sort of how we know each other. And we talk about baseball and specifically the Giants. Can you talk a little bit about how it happened for you? Like you're you're basically a raging fan. I am. And uh, I tell people and they're like, that makes no sense because you grew up in New Jersey. Um, you've never lived in the Bay Area. And it kind of goes into how we know each other, which is uh, you were my brother's, my older brother's freshman year roommate and in college. And so um, I was always interested in baseball you know, in the different cities that I lived in. I've lived in D.C. And, and I lived in Miami. But when it came time, when I first moved to Miami for my brother to come visit, he because he's a raging Giants fan as well, um, was like, you know what, I'm going to come the weekend that the Giants are in town so we can go to the games. And I was like, sure. So we went together and um, he got me really into the players. I think this was in 2012. And that year he was just like, hey, you know, if they make the World Series, we're going to go. And I'm like, okay. So we ended up going to the World Series uh, with you. And then we ended up going to the World Series again with you. And that's how I get to, got to know you some more as well. So that was sort of how it started and how it's continued. Yeah. And your brother obviously has been great since college, but he became even greater when he started taking me and us to all those World Series uh, championships. Yeah. I mean, um, we're all obsessed. I mean, it's crazy, though. I mean, I looked at something that said that only 9% of Americans like baseball as their favorite sport. And so I understand that. 
And everybody says it's boring, but why isn't it boring for us? Like, what do you say to people who say, like, how is it possible that you even like baseball anymore? Yeah, I think what really gets me is um, the players and the personalities. And uh, there's something about, I think, the Giants that they've like cultivated this culture of players. Not only are they super talented, and, and I think they they do a good job of of scouting and picking players that are you know really work together as a team. But just the personalities, like you, you look at like people like Hunter Pence and they're just kind of like odd ducks and like Johnny Cueto, like especially now in the age of social media where you can follow all these players on Instagram and see what they're up to. I mean, all of them, I just think are funny. They seem to be really like down to earth guys, but just have this weird streak about them. So, I mean, what makes baseball interesting to me, I think, is knowing their personalities, just seeing, I know, you know, Dave is obsessed with this, but seeing Hunter Pence when he's, you know, getting ready to go up to bat. Dave cannot help himself every time he goes to a game to videotape Hunter Pence because he just kind of looks like his ass a little bit when he's swinging. So I, I think, you know, for me, what drives it for me is the personalities behind the, with the players. Yeah. Hunter Pence is a source of joy that does not end. <laughs> um, exactly. Do you think that the Giants have any chance um, this year? Man, I hope so. Um, you know, with the, the trades happening off season with um, Longoria and with, uh, McCutcheon especially I'm really hopeful but I know you and I were talking earlier we're just worried a little bit about the pitching but hey it's an even year so maybe maybe this will be our year again I hope so it'll be great to see Dave over here again you know that'll be good um so we could talk about baseball the whole show but I also <laughs> want to get back also to you're currently in Southern California and you're also an attorney and mm -hmm. for everybody out there sort of can you just speak about how you got to where you are. Yeah. So, <clears throat> excuse me. I was um, in law school in DC and I had spent my second summer at a public defender's office actually. And I really enjoyed that work. Um, trial work was something I never really envisioned myself doing. When I went into law school, I thought I was going to do more transactional stuff, but I got kind of got into a courtroom and I got hooked. And um, when it came time to figure out what I was going to do for my first job outside of law school, um, I got recruited actually uh, to to become a criminal prosecutor in Miami, Florida, and it was just an opportunity that I couldn't really um, pass down because it was a challenge to me to be in a courtroom and to be that kind of uh, advocate in the courtroom. It's not really my cup of tea per se to be in front of a group of 20 jurors and to persuade them to come to one conclusion or another. So I really enjoyed that time there. I spent uh, four years in Miami doing criminal work as a prosecutor and then Knowing that I didn't necessarily want to stay in Florida, um, I sat for the bar in California, and now I work at the Attorney General's office uh, in Southern California doing civil work now. Oh, that's great. And what's your favorite part right now of your job? Um, it's I still get that courtroom experience. I, um, I'm happy that I can still do that um, here in California. And uh, I actually work with a really great group of people, a really great group of attorneys. So I think that makes work really enjoyable. Why do you think, you know, so everybody understands that our system requires a good prosecution and a good defense, whether it's on criminal or civil. But why do you think that there's just a lot of negativity sometimes toward the prosecution? It's tough. Um, I think the, the one thing that's drilled in you in law school, and especially in my old office, is that being a prosecutor, um, they always say that the prosecutor wears the white hat. So the prosecutor doesn't have a client like a, a defense attorney, where the defense attorney's client is obviously the defendant. The prosecutor is really serving justice, and that's such an amorphous concept 
um, to really wrap your head around, especially as a young prosecutor. Um, so the prosecutor's main role in all, at all times is, is to do the right thing. And sometimes the right thing means um, prosecuting a case to the fullest and, and doing, you know, believing that a defendant is guilty and trying to uh, prove that in court. And sometimes it means reviewing the evidence and critically and realizing that maybe there isn't enough evidence there to, to go forward in that case or uh, that the police actually got the wrong person. So um, it's a really difficult job to be a prosecutor. I really, I'm very proud of the work that I did uh, in that office and proud of the people that do that. And unfortunately, part of, part of the, the problem, I think, with the perception is that it really only takes a couple bad apples to sort of ruin the reputation of all. Uh, I remember when we first started, when I first started in Miami, um, one of the first speeches we got was your reputation is everything. So it, as a prosecutor in your work, you have to really be um, ethical at all times and, you know, thinking critically about all of your cases and really making sure you really are doing the right thing at all times, which can be pretty stressful. So one thing I wanted to ask you about it is this issue of jury duty. Everybody understands that it's important, but nobody wants to be on it. Yeah. Um, what do you say to even educators? You know, we know, oh, it's the it's our duty. It's it's important. But why doesn't anybody want to do it? And then what would you say to people who don't want to do it? Well, no one wants to do it because everyone sees it as this onerous thing where you're going to be stuck in a courtroom. You're going to be waiting around for a long period of time. A lot of people, um, I remember when I was doing jury, jury trials, just don't want to also judge people. They don't necessarily want to be the ultimate um, fact finder in a criminal case, which, you know, is totally understandable. They don't want to um, necessarily be a part of that process, which they find um, either abhorrent or, you know, they just they just don't want to judge people in that way. So, you know, it's it it affects your personal life. It um, might affect how you, you know, you think your thoughts about society. So I think that's why people don't want to do it. But I think, honestly, people just don't want to do it because they don't want to feel like they're wasting like five days out of their life um, for something that they don't necessarily care about. But as a lawyer, um, it's so important for us, you know, the, the whole reason our system works and our criminal justice system and our even our civil system is that we get these jurors that come in and act as our fact finders. Um, there are some situations where the judges act, act as fact finders, but that this is how our democracy was sort of started. And I don't really want to wax poetic about that, but you know, without the jurors, our our system wouldn't work. And that's something that is always emphasized in uh, in our in trials is that without the jurors, you know, we couldn't go forward. Um, so it's so funny that most you say that most people hate jury duty. I can tell you for a fact, usually lawyers love going to jury duty. I just got picked for jury duty last fall. And uh, when I got my summons, I was in my elevator in my building and I was just reading it. And this guy, one of my neighbors saw that I was reading my summons and he's like, oh no, you got jury duty. And I'm like, oh yes, I got jury duty. I was so pumped. Um, but I didn't get picked, of course, unfortunately. Yeah, I can see why you'd be into it. Uh, I had jury duty. Well, I was called during the summer and I was excited. I was a teacher then and I was excited and I almost got on a jury, but they took, instead of me, a teacher, they took an animal clairvoyant, you know, like a, a person who could talk to animals alive and, and past. And, yeah. and it was the prosecutor who said, you know, that they would prefer this person over me. And I know that with teachers, you know, either teachers are strict disciplinarians or they're too 
loose. And so, but they did choose this woman over me. And um, I was a little bitter about that. Wow. You know, what's uh, crazy is that, you know, I didn't realize this until I actually sat for jury duty and I didn't get selected, but they do the jury selection process right in front of all the jurors and sort of talk about you while you're there, which is a little uncomfortable, I think. I don't know if you got that experience. It, it was. I, I thought I was a better candidate than this animal clairvoyant, but you know, maybe maybe she was a little bit more open minded. But yeah, so if it's okay, I would love to transition now to the highlighter, why you listen and why you subscribe, and then ultimately also to the article that you wanna talk about. So first of all, is it podcast or digest? Which one is better for you and why? Ooh, um I'd have to say podcast is better for me just because it's harder for me to find the time to um, read long form articles. Uh, I, unfortunately, I'm just reading for eight hours out of the day for work. Um, so typically I try to read the highlighter um, on my commute actually, because I take the trolley and, uh, to get into work in downtown San Diego. So that's really the time where I can sit back, have some coffee and, and drink uh, and to listen to your, I'm sorry, to read your articles that you picked out for us. So, um, but when I'm getting ready for work is actually typically when I'm listening to podcasts or when I'm making dinner. And so I definitely fit in your podcast in during that time period. It makes me happy that the podcast is part of your dinner making um, process. <laughs> so, but given that you don't know any of these people, why has it been interesting to you? Um, well, I think it's just, you know, honestly, hearing different people's perspectives, you get so many different kinds of people, um, in your podcast and, and different perspectives also in your, the long form articles that you pick. Um, I've always been interested in education in general. I did, uh, work as, as a tutor for a little while and, and I have such, this is like a long time ago, but I also just have such awe for, uh, people who are teachers. I think it's a really tough job. Um, even as, as a trial attorney, I'm, I'm not in trial all the time, but I feel like teachers, you're always in front of an audience, especially of kids who are, can be pretty critical, I think. So, you know, just in terms of the, the public speaking that you guys have to do in front of this ever-changing group of, of uh, students, I think is really tough. And I really respect that. Um, so anyway, the highlighter, though, gives you um, a lot of different kinds of articles. I like how the content is always constantly changing. Um, you sort of keep to the same theme um, and ideas of you know, race and education and culture, which I, you know, I'm always interested to read more about. Um, but you give give us for sure a diverse amount and a diverse amount of topics to to read from. That is very kind. You should be on the commercial. It's very, very, very <laughs> nice. Um, so let's now make the move over to the article. Which article have you chosen for us to talk about? I picked an article from not this past issue, but the issue before, um, where I think you called it the Minority Report article. It was the, can you arrest people before they commit crimes? And I thought um, this article was actually kind of perfect for me with my criminal uh, background. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it was in number 127, and it was by Sam Dean. And yeah, I did change the headline a little bit for clickbait, I think. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, obviously, I can see why you chose it. But what um, what resonated most uh, for you right at the beginning? Well, it, it, it brings up this important idea in policing and in criminal justice with um, what can we do? We want to try to be more predictive and less reactive in policing and how can we prevent crime that way? So, you know, that, that drew me in right away. It's like, Ooh, what is this going to be about? And so that's why I read it. 
Yeah. And so were you aware of some of the practices, the the practices that had, I guess, been going around the country um, from New York to L.A.? Um, I know that you're not doing policing directly, but as a prosecutor, were you aware of some of these sort of like big data systems to try in some ways to predict where um, hotspots were going to be? Yeah, I'd heard of Comstat before. I hadn't heard the actual term PredPol before, but, you know, it's it's definitely been a topic that um, I've heard about and I, I knew a little bit about before reading the article. So, yeah, I was interested in how the article was first talking about place based um sort of prediction. And then especially with LAPD, it sort of has shifted almost to being able to predict specific people. Yeah. Um, it seemed like the the author was trying to create a distinction um, there. Did you get that same sense? Yeah, um, I think there's sort of the tone was that the place-based um, isn't necessarily um, a bad thing. I think he he used an opinion from from an expert who analyzed the data and said, yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, logically it makes sense. So that the police would go to the places where, I guess, the property crime, I think that was really specializing in what that was really referring to where the property crime is, you know, theoretically, if you put more police there, then the property crime should go down. Um, but it was an interesting, it was interesting to me to read about these new databases, which I hadn't heard about, um, what was it? Operation Laser and Palantir were, were talking about this, these databases that gather way more information than the typical police officer would have at his or her fingertips, um, which was pretty concerning to me. Yeah. I mean, so this laser program for folks who haven't read it yet, you definitely should read it. It stands for Los Angeles Strategic Extraction and something like restoration or something. <laughs> and what it does, apparently, I read and apparently it gives points to individuals for the possibility that they will commit a future crime. Things like, are they on parole or probation? Have they had handgun arrests in the past? Um, and also, are they like part of a gang? And what's your thought about this, given that it is so hard, perhaps, to prevent or even to prosecute crime what are your thoughts about this kind of level of data analysis? You know, I think um, some of the, the data that was talked about in the article um, is data that actually police have access to anyway. So putting it into a centralized database, I thought was relatively benign. So, for example, the data about um, types of arrests um, and, and rap sheets, that's what it's called, um, which include your arrest and your convictions. That's stuff that's already at the hands of police officers anyway. So I don't I don't really think putting that in another in it in a database with other information is, uh, is particularly concerning. Um, so like that kind of criminal justice information that's related to the criminal justice system, I don't think is a problem. But what I did see as a problem is, um, certain information that one would think would be kept private. And I was actually kind of skeptical in the article about whether or not these databases that we frankly don't know that much. And we don't have that much information about because they're being kept, kept, uh, pretty, uh, tight to the chest with the the police departments that are using them allegedly um, is the the you know data your medical records data which I found surprising um, that police would have access to that because that's pretty highly protected information that's protected by most state constitutions um, via your right to privacy um, that kind of data and other kind of data like I think that one example in the article was like the, they're going to know the last time you bought pizza at, at Papa John's. And so just as a lawyer, I was a little skeptical that, that that information would be 
put in a database um, that the police would have access to. And like I said, it's because like medical records are so sensitive that for anyone to get hold of them, they would need a subpoena or, you know, um, right. a court order. Right. I don't want anybody to know the last time I had pizza at Papa John's. <laughs> Absolutely not. I mean, that's totally like major privacy issues there. Yeah. I mean, I totally hear you, but I also understand that police, like in general, it's really hard sometimes to do the work that they're trying to do. I, and I can totally see why um, these databases would be helpful to them. Um, and I do think that there's an issue because we in society obviously want to be safe, but we also want to make sure that there's not surveillance and there's also sort of like a preservation of our rights. So do you feel like the biggest issue here is that we just don't know enough about these um, these databases? Yeah, I think um, I kind of see it on both sides, both for the police and for the public in general. I do really appreciate and respect the people that are, are you know, fighting and in the court system and trying to get more infor information about these systems and um, what the algorithms are that they use and what information they can actually obtain. Because I think a lot of um, what was in the article was speculation. I think there were some reference to some studies that were done that said that they can get certain kinds of information, but you know, it it doesn't really seem like it's it completely clear what the, these police departments can actually get. It's really important that I think that the police be transparent, especially in this time period where you know the relationship between the public and the police is really fraught with a lot of issues. Now, um, I think it's important that that police. I think it's really important that the police have a good relationship with the public, and I don't think. Um, the system where they have access to this database where they're um, accessing information that, that it should be kept private is really good for the, their reputation and, and their relationship with the public. Yeah, I appreciate also your um, your statement that a lot of this information has already been available to the police. Um, one thing, though, that was striking to me is that if it's true that prior arrests and prior convictions actually is one of the biggest predictors. It suggests that maybe our system isn't entirely working with with regard to, you know, for example, recidivism. I guess that's just reality. Um, but it sort of sucks. You know, it sort of sucks that um, the the people who most likely are going to be the people who are going to commit crime are folks who I guess have already committed crime. Yeah, it's sort of like we're in a broken system to begin with. I think the article made a really good point to show that, you know, a lot of the arrests that occur are based upon like institutionalized racism. So really, is it right to be using past arrest data to try to predict future behavior? And aren't you really just reinforcing institutionalized racism? And that's a really, really good point um, that I think everyone needs to recognize when trying to do this predictive policing. Yeah, and I, I I like the point, even though it's not a great point, meaning it's a sad point that we are in this system. I know of a number of colleagues in my past in the education system who say that there's actually a lot of parallels between the criminal justice system and the education system. We we talk a lot about the school to prison pipeline, for example, where mm -hmm. 
there's just discipline and punish. It's the idea if you're not compliant, then you get pushed out, which people call dropping out. And then ultimately you have folks who have dropped out from high school and obviously they're going to be uh, more likely uh, to perhaps um, commit crimes. Um, as a person who has been in the criminal justice uh, system, like how do you, how do you do good work? knowing that there's a larger system that might have brokenness to it? That's a good question. Um, I think for any prosecutor, you really, um, your main drive and your main purpose has to really be seeking the truth. Um, really check like any case that you have, I think you really have to analyze very thoroughly to determine whether or not you have enough evidence to actually move forward um, with a case and that you can prove your case beyond a reasonable doubt, which is the highest standard um, in the court system. Um, and on top of that, I think prosecutors, especially, I don't think this is necessarily true of police officers, but prosecutors have um, a, an obligation, a very serious obligation to always disclose everything that they have, tell the truth about everything that they have, be uh, open and honest uh, to the court and to uh, defense attorneys. You know, and I think I think for prosecutors, it really helps too to read articles like this um, to really get an idea of how the criminal justice system is working, where it's going. Um, I think being cognizant of all of this information as a prosecutor or as a public defender um, or as a defense attorney, what you know, whatever role you have in the in the criminal justice system, or even as a judge. Um, to, to read articles like this and understand what's going on, I think will give you a better understanding of how to move forward in, in cases that you have. So I think, you know, that's the best way to go forward. Yeah. And I also think that folks who aren't um, lawyers and attorneys and in the system could also learn a little bit more about some of the nuances and the challenges of the criminal justice system. Um, I would like to ask you, because part of the highlighter is getting to know people across difference and hopefully to sort of be able to listen and to have a little bit of empathy. Let's say that I'm cynical about law at this point. Yeah. yeah. And, and this is what you do, whether it's civil or criminal. Is there any words of wisdom or challenges that you have for us? Oh, man, that's a big one, Mark. I mean, in, in any court of law, I think you have to realize that the players are all human beings and that human beings can make mistakes. So, you know, sometimes you hear these cases in, in the media of like these egregious cases where, um, you know, people have been in prison for 20, 30 years and it's, it's an awful thing. Um, and it turns out that that person wasn't necessarily the person who perpetrated the crime. And don't get me wrong. A lot of those cases involve, um, misconduct by prosecutors, misconduct by police, and that definitely needs to be addressed and reckoned with. Um, but I think it's important if I can say for at least the people that I, I worked with when I worked um, as a prosecutor that almost everyone, the majority of people who work as prosecutors or work in the criminal justice system are really trying to do the right thing. But I think it's important to realize that it's not going to be a totally perfect system because it's based on the actions of humans, which are, you know, inherently not perfect. Um, but I think, you know, it's important to realize that most people are trying to do the best that they can and trying to work with what they can. Yeah, that's fair. All right. Last question. It's the most important, which is, uh, who is your current giants favorite player? And if, <laughs> and if it is Hunter Pence, who is your second? 
Oh, um, just based on Instagram, I think it might have to be Johnny Cueto because he puts up the best Instagram videos of like food and of like working out. And, you know, he's speaking in Spanish in them. And I don't even know what he's saying, but everything that he's saying is so funny. And I honestly watch his videos <laughs> over and over again and send them to friends because they just make me laugh. That's the best. Thank you so much, Christine. Thank you for being on the show. It's really, really wonderful to have you. Thank you so much, Mark. I want to thank Christine yet again for being on the show. Thank you so much for sharing your perspective and your insight. It's pretty clear that the Highlighter community is filled with some pretty great people. So thank you yet again. Before I go, one last thing is I definitely want to hear from you. The phone number is 415-886-7475. This week's question is, what are your thoughts about predictive policing? And what is the appropriate line between law enforcement and surveillance? Please give me a call with your thoughts and maybe they'll go on the air next week. With that, I want to wish you a wonderful, wonderful week and be looking out for the next newsletter, which is coming out, as you know, this Thursday at 9, 10 a.m. Have a great week.